This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here by myself, so I'm going to keep it kind of quick today uh, because we have two great interviews to share. First, you're going to hear from David Canfield, who talked to Sigourney Weaver. She's had, obviously, a long and extremely successful career, but she's got an especially good fall happening right now. She's in the film called Jane about the underground abortion network in the 60s. Uh, She's in Paul Schrader's Master Gardener, which premiered at the Venice Film Festival earlier this year. And then coming up later this year, she's in Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, She was Obviously, of course, in the original Avatar, she's back as a different character this time uh, and had some talk about what a kinder James Cameron looks like making that movie. So a really big fall for an actress that we love. So let's hear David's conversation with Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver, thank you so much for joining us today. Call Jane is uh, premiering this week. Uh it's a pretty remarkable story for those who are not familiar. There's also a documentary about it uh, premiered on HBO. So this this group, you know, perhaps a little bit ahead of the culture, is very much back in the conversation this year. Um, I've seen the movie twice. I saw it uh, at Sundance when we were in some kind of different world, let's say, um, and and it hit me so much differently watching it again after uh, Roe v. Wade's uh, being overturned. I'm curious if you've, you know, how you've experienced the movie pre and post, and if you've ever had that with a movie before where it suddenly takes on this incredible new resonance after you make it. I mean, I usually try to choose subjects that are close to my heart, and often the situation they may be describing is still going on. But I think Call Jane was especially important to me. I I was alive uh, mm-hmm. before Roe versus Wade, and I think... I think that what's missing in our big dialogue is just how much love and support and actual health care the woman needs who's in this situation. And about a third of women now um, don't have access to that kind of health care. But ultimately, you know, I think Phyllis Nagy did a brilliant job taking you back into the experience of the woman. We see the procedure in a very non, you know, in a very discreet way, and you you see different women having the procedure, it just sort of reorients the argument away from politics to healthcare, which it is. Hmm. What is your research project for a movie like this, where there's so much in the script, but there's also so much inevitably that goes beyond the script in terms of this group, this world, this time? 
and this this activism. Um, what did that look like for you on on this one versus perhaps other projects? Yeah. Well, luckily I was alive. Yes. So I remember women burning their bras, and um, I think I I just devoured any information. The women in in um, Call Jane have done a lot of interviews, and as you say, there's a documentary about it, and I just gobbled up all mm. of that detail. Um, these women were so courageous, and they they uh, ranged from you know college students to older women, and um, it just to me was very inspiring to show. And I really believe this: when women come together, it's so easy for us to form connections and take care of each other. And I think that's a message we really need to hear these days when people are so estranged from each other because of politics. This is, to me, not a political issue. This is about healthcare and access. Mm. That's the thing about the movie, too, is it's incredibly hopeful. And that surprised me the first time I watched it. And it kind of knocked me out a little bit the second time I watched it. I, I forgot that quality of the movie. Did it feel that way on set? And and is that a sense, is that a kind of hope that you think about now that the movie has this greater resonance and importance, I think? It's interesting. That That's a good point. I do think the movie is reassuring in reminding us that we are not helpless in this situation. I think there's a lot of, um, since Roe versus Wade was struck down, there's a lot of just absolute shock and alarm at the fact that these rights are stripped away. And I think the movie just takes us back into a time when when we were still in the same situation, but we we were motivated to take action and come together. And, and we can't look back. We have to look forward. The whole landscape has changed in terms of medication and everything else. And I think the the upbeat tone of the movie, I dare say my character is quite funny sometimes. Yes. And uh, she's very dry. And so there are actually a lot of laughs in the movie. It's also about women's friendship and all kinds of other things. So it's it's a good movie. It's a, you know, it's it's not a bleak movie. Right, exactly. Um, you mentioned your character, Virginia, not taking no for an answer, which is one of my favorite qualities in a Sigourney Weaver character. It's been true of a few of your characters over the years. Uh, Is that an easy space for you to step into? Well, sometimes I have a flamethrower, which really makes it difficult (laughs) for people to say Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I love Virginia because she was unlike anything I'd ever played. You know, she's an activist. The women, a lot of women were somewhat sidelined in the anti-war movement because the men were the leaders. And I think, you know, Virginia comes at this organization with all that pent-up energy that she never got to express and um, has really found her calling. And I think she's a very interesting leader. She's good at listening, rare, and um, mm-hmm. and um, really wants to find solutions to some of the issues confronting them, like the access to health care for, you know, black women, Latino and indigenous and LGBT women, which is a problem that existed then and still exists now. Yes. You have 
quite an, a, a remarkable year, I would say, for any actor uh, in 2022. Four very different roles uh, that I've seen in Master Gardener. Well, three that I've seen. Master Gardener, The Good House, Call Jane. No one has seen Avatar 2 yet. I, don't, yeah. I assume you I are among either. that group. No. Um, in an industry that, and I know you've talked about this, enjoys typecasting uh, and pigeonholing, especially uh, actresses, it must feel good and fun to be able to play as you said, this is a completely different role for you, and these are the other ones are as well. I know. I'm I'm like shocked. It's like I threw these magic beans out the window <laughs> and they went boom. I've always tried to find movies that mean something to me, but also I never like to repeat myself. I'm always game to try a, a character that is very challenging to me. But it is great fun for me, frankly, to see you know, as an older actor as well, these four movies, and I have a fifth uh, project coming out to, a, a, again, a very strong woman. They're all physically different. They all have different situations. And, and I just, I love the fact that, you know, we can see that actors should not be typecast. That's an easy way of categorizing us, but that we're capable of so many different stories to tell. And I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate that, that this was all because of COVID. I started Avatar in 2017, I think. So it's all coming out in a jumble. Um, but it, it, it does make me happy. Yeah. Uh, And to an extent, I think it's about finding variations within, like, say, a strong woman type, as you say, you know, in Master Gardener, uh, she's certainly a strong woman, but she is about as far from Virginia as you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yes. How do you, how does a character like that strike you on the page? And how do you think about approaching it? Because it's, it's a fun role and it's a different, very different role. Yeah, to me, it's a very Tennessee Williams kind of world in a way. Um, you know, I'm so text-oriented. I really let uh, the, the text work on me. And especially with Paul Schrader's script, Master Gardener, it was so dense. It was like a layer, 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 layer. And you had to kind of just spend a lot of time with the script and let it seep into you. But I actually based... Norma on two women I love and respect very much because I felt there was a danger of her slipping into some sort of caricature or bad person. And I just wanted to play this woman's personal situation. It's a very odd situation, but she's very emotionally caught up in it. And, um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it is, as Paul explained it to me, it's about a a three-way love affair Mm-hmm. And um, so I found it fascinating. I, I've sort of avoided roles where I potentially chew the scenery, but Norma does some of that, and it felt really good, I have to say. <laughs> I think we've been waiting for that. <laughs> a little little yeah, scenery, scenery chewing. Yeah. <laughs> After a few years in this industry, one, one earns the right, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the way I heard you shot this was was pretty interesting, just given the, the limitations in time and budget, um, where you'd go from, say, you know, within one scene, a master setup to a two shot to a close up. Do I have that kind of way of doing it right? Yes. I mean, Paul had wanted to shoot in 20 days. That is the way he's shot First Reformed and um, Card Counter. Uh, and he wanted to stick to that. So often during the day, I'm very grateful. I've been around 
a while. So I kind of understood that. But I think for Quintessa, she just took to it, you know. But mm-hmm. um, you do you did the master, you did a couple of those, and then just skipped to the next part of the scene and did maybe a two-shot and then just went in for what we absolutely needed, usually at the end of the scene for the close-up. So it was fine because the script was so good. Um, but it was a very economical way of shooting, let's put it that way. Usually you shoot a master and then a two-shot and then and that. Uh, or you have a shot that turns into that. So anyway, but... You know, he did it in 20 days. He's amazing. Yeah. Given the kind of character you're playing with that sort of schedule, it's it's also interesting to me that you have to make big choices and you don't necessarily have as much as much room to um, maybe scale them back. You got to kind of go for it, right? Yeah. I love that, though. I think yeah. that's what I love about film is you just have to leap off that cliff. And it's yeah. like doing... You know, it's like doing a very broad sketch of something and um, hopefully the colors start to be infused at the same time, but it does involve sort of no net. Mm -hmm. And I must say, I find that terrifying, exhilarating and helpful for the character because you have to have like a direct line into that belly of the character and get out of their way. Because by then, you've absorbed the script enough so that there is kind of a creature, (laughs) you know, snarling and waiting to get out. Right. Both Paul Schrader and Phyllis Nagy, I believe it's the first time you've worked with these directors. You have many recurring collaborators, including one we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, But working with a new director, let's say with Phyllis, for example, um, what does that do for you as an actor? What what are those early sort of feeling each other out challenges like? and what, how did Phyllis ultimately strike you as a collaborator? Well, you know, knowing that we had no time, I think all of us prepared a lot. Mm-hmm. And Phyllis and I uh, had a couple of Zooms where we would just sort of touch on things. Um, there's, Virginia has quite a bit of exposition, and I, I felt it was a little bald, Uh, So we talked about that. And in the end, I ended up doing it all because I wanted people to understand how we were doing this and what Virginia had to do, making deals with the mob and stuff like that. Uh, To me, that was all very accurate about the period. And then once we got on the floor, you know, (laughs) it's a big cast, a wonderful cast. She found wonderful people, a great crew, a wonderful cinematographer, Greta, and Elizabeth, uh, who can do anything. And um, she was able to concentrate on all the different things because I think we hit the ground running as actors, as women. We are so committed to this material. And um, so those meetings that you see us having, um, it seemed very natural, Mm. you know. And and I think the, the cast that Phyllis found and the way she organized it, you know, and the clothes that we were wearing from Julie Weiss, you know, all of it fed into what this world was, who we were, what was at stake. And um, so it was sort of like, you know, kind of letting something out. You know, it just sort of Hmm. was very organic by the time we started, I think. 
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Um, well, then you go to someone you've worked with for over 30 years in uh, James Cameron, or I suppose that started before Call Jane technically, but for, for us who've been yeah. waiting, uh, that movie will come after this. I, I'm just curious about what that conversation is like with someone you've known that long when he asks you to play a 14-year-old girl. Um, I'm sure there's great trust there at this point, uh, but even by your versatile standards, that is, again, something new. <laughs> I know. I know. I don't think John Wayne was asked to play a 14-year-old, may I, I just hope, say. I, I, I hope not. I think it's <laughs> uh, be a first for someone of your caliber. I, I had a very early conversation with Jim about this, and, um, you know, he was very already committed to this this kind of character, but who she was— what she was about was something we talked about at the beginning. Um, I loved the choices he made ultimately, that she was part of the family and that I think we worked together too because when I first saw the pictures of my character, she was so perfect, every mm. hair in place. And I said, you know, Jim, you know, when you're a 14, 13, 14-year-old 14 girl, that is not how you feel about yourself. You know, and I was this tall when I was 11. So I was just like a big spider moving around, knocking things over. And I felt that it was a more difficult time for Kiri, especially because the family is uprooted in the beginning. And so it's great because I got together with the the designers or the drawers and just brought some awkwardness. That's what he ended up calling his now awkward carry as opposed mm. to perfect carry. And I think that's, um, I, you know, for better or worse, my awkward, self-conscious teenager was able to flow right into carry. And um, I had to work in a completely different way, which is like, I don't know, kind of letting it flow into me, letting her. I, I don't know that I'm that any of us is very far removed from our adolescent uh, moment uh, because it certainly uh, stands out in bold relief, I think, for a lot of people. So I had that great advantage that I, I'm not sure how far I've gotten away from my teenager, for better or worse, but um, Jim said to me, you can do this. You're so immature. This is about how old you are anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's good. That, that's a good encouragement for yeah. that role. That's probably what <laughs> you need to hear, to right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I saw he told the the New York Times recently that he became the, I think the words he used were kinder, gentler James Cameron <laughs> while making Avatar 2. Not to say you observe the opposite of that, but did you observe that kind of change in him? You know, even when we were making Avatar 1, um, you know, when I first worked with Jim, no one really knew who he was. Terminator hadn't come out yet, at least in England, and he had to kind of prove himself every day, which makes you have to feel a little more driven. And now Jim is, you know, he's at a point in his life where he has his own family, a very stable life, and I think he put a lot of the love he felt for his family um, into these stories. Uh, they're very personal in a way. And I think he just, you know, he cast the people he wanted. He wrote the stories he wanted. And then I think he really relaxed and embraced this experience. He is very demanding, but uh, no one is more demanding than Jim is on himself you know, so whatever the hours were, whatever the challenges, like there was a lot of underwater work, you know, it was an adventure, I have to say. And But I always know that when I'm with Jim, I, I'm going to be safe. There are going to mm-hmm. be professionals there to rescue me or what have you. And it's going to be a journey, you know. I mean, you don't really know what's going to happen when you take on this kind of performance capture kind of person. Coming from the theater, I I felt it was just like I was in a black leotard on an empty stage with nothing there, just my imagination. So I found that really liberating. I didn't have lights to wait for. I didn't have this and that, you know. And um, and so I it's just actor to actor, and our actors are so good, so good at playing these characters that it was it was exhilarating to be able to do this kind of work without worrying about hair, makeup, blah, 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 you know? Yeah. Do you have a sense of, you know, what it will look like, what the movie's going to be? It must be kind of exciting to make a movie like this, spend so much time on it, and then really have no idea what's coming in terms of the final product, right? I mean, I know what I read. I know what I shot. We shot two and three together. And my little friend, Trinity, who plays my little sister, she was my guest at these L Awards last week, and she said, you know, sometimes I can't remember what's in two and what's in three. And I said, I'm right there with you, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, for us, it will be quite an amazing experience. I hope we get to see it before we have to talk about it. I'm hoping that we will have an opportunity, but no one is going to see it really. We're all going to see it at the same time because that's when it's going to be ready. I think mm. we're all really excited and yeah. joyous, frankly, that it's coming out. Yeah, I think everyone, everyone is very excited for this movie. So we're we're right Good. there with you. Um, well, given all these projects and how varied they are, I'm curious what the next few years you want those to look like for you. You know, what do the scripts look like? Do you have maybe a different kind of standard coming off of a string of projects like this for for what you want to do next? You know, I've always sort of trusted in the universe to find the right odd project. Um, I am doing a wonderful project with a first-time director, a a screenplay by Brian Watkins, um, Hmm. and it's a sort of three-hander. I play a rather awful character, I must say, but 
I can't wait. Her best friend is a sheep, and they watch soap operas together. That's, um, that's I'm, I'm there. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder what the, the plot will be of your, movie in, your next movie in like five years, because they seem to be getting more excitingly off the wall. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you're lucky when you can find projects like that. I turned down a lot of things just because, listen, I feel very fortunate to be sent things. But I I, I think I am, I have, have been spoiled a bit being able to do projects that are about something more than just the people in them. And, um, you know, I think as one gets older... You know, I, I look at Maggie Smith and I go, well, she's going on forever. That's great. Um, mm. I don't know if I'll do that. Sometimes I think I'll run away to India and really learn how to do yoga or something. But I, I must say that I, you know, for better or worse, I really love to work. I I finally feel I kind of know what I'm doing. And I love being part of the older group on a set, you know. Uh, because I feel like this is a business where we all learn from each other, inspire each other, no matter what age we are. Uh, I love that about the business. And um, so, you know, whatever my goals are or my ideas, I think probably inevitably I'll be pulled back into a project. Hmm. When you say you feel like you finally know what you're doing, can you talk a little bit more about what that that looks like for you, because of course, to people like me who love Working Girl Alien, it feels like you've known what you're doing for quite a long time. But obviously, uh, it does. You do feel like you've progressed. Well, into something. once once I get on the set, I think I just let my instinct take over. So, hmm. Working Girl, uh, actually, my character was based on someone that Mike Nichols and I both knew and liked. It's always good to have a real person kind of to inspire you, like a little mm-hmm. like a little bit of lemon sherbet in the back of your mouth, kind of giving you that that little feeling. But I think that I was I was discouraged at drama school. I think I took that too seriously. I wish I hadn't. But um I think it took me a while to get going. I was very lucky to have Alien as a first movie, basically. That opened so many doors for me. But I was very ambivalent about a film career. Um, I really wanted to stay in the theater. So I, I think I've grown with my career. And I have, even though I panic before every job and go, oh, what made me think I knew how to do this? Because I can't remember anything about it. I think the only good part of that is it really forces you to go back to the script again and again, really immerse yourself. By the time you get on the set, you've done absolutely everything you can think of, any research, anything that you know it up and down and around, and and then you just kind of let it go. So I, I now trust that. I think I was taught at drama school that I have to make a list of what I'm gonna do each Mm. beat and what my um, intention was. And I worked with Harris Eulin on a Shakespeare play early on. And I, I, came, I was playing Rosalind, as you like it. And I came in, I said, well, I'm not sure uh, quite what my motivation is here. And he went, do you know your motivation every time you come into a room? I went, well, no. And he said, well, so that, she doesn't either. So that kind of was a very freeing thing. So I suddenly realized that the techniques they teach you are, if you need them, but if you make a genuine connection with a character, 
you can just let that go. And I've realized over the years that I'm a very instinctive kind of actor, and I just get out of my own way. Hmm. And I would imagine with characters like this, it's it's easier to make that kind of connection. Yeah. Uh, well, Sigourney Weaver, thank you so, so much. Uh, Call Jane in theaters Friday, important movie, timely movie, um, and you're just a wonderful part of it. So thank you again. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. And now you'll hear me talking to Sheila McCarthy, who, if you're trying to find the standout actress from Women Talking, I think you could argue yourself in circles forever about who the best one is in there. But she is the one who I came out of that movie raving about. She's been a veteran of Canadian television and theater for years and years. So naturally, she has known Sarah Polly for years and years. She actually played Sarah Polly's mother back when Sarah Polly was an actress um, and is part of the ensemble of Sarah Polly's movie Women Talking about a community of men and women who have been suffering a series of horrific rapes and abuse and are trying to decide whether to stay or to go. Um, And her character is really indicative of the movie's really specific humor. Uh, She has a series of monologues about her horses named Ruth and Cheryl, who you will never forget once you see this movie. Um, But it's obviously really heavy stuff and something that the, the cast and Sarah Polly, the director and writer and the crew, all had to really come together and figure their way through. And Sheila McCarthy's been acting a long time. She's been teaching acting a long time. And I think she brought a lot of her experience there um, as for her own performance and just kind of being part of a group with some younger generations of actresses in there, which I talked to her about. Uh, It was so great talking to her. I love talking about this movie. You've heard us talk about it on this show plenty of times. So let's hear my conversation with Sheila McCarthy. Okay, hello, Sheila McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about Women Talking. Thank you. Um, You guys have been on kind of a journey with this film. There was the Telluride premiere. There was the Toronto premiere. I know it's playing festivals kind of all over the place right now. Just generally, how, how have you been feeling these last few months watching this movie finally emerge? Well, it requires a lot of clothing, you know, um, and a lot of planning. Um, You know, and it's funny, getting back in the saddle and traveling again after two years of COVID um, is another journey, you know, going through the airport. But um, I think none of us realized the impact that the film would have on audiences. I didn't even think about it. And it was, you know, the, the swell of reaction started in Telluride, in the streets of Telluride, and it was pretty overwhelming and it has continued to be so it's it's um i'm 
I'm so honored to be part of this film. I, I, I do think it's a, quite an important film, and, and we all knew that when we were making it, but uh, we're starting to reap the benefits of the effect that it's having on people now. Yeah, you saying you didn't think about the audience is interesting to me because you've done a lot of theater, you've directed theater, you know, the audience is very immediate to you when you do that. So was it not, was it with women talking specifically that the audience wasn't front of mind or is that usually something you do, just focus on the work and not think about the result? You know, I think that when you're in the bubble of filmmaking, I mean, we were so entrenched in making the movie and telling the story under under the guidance of Sarah Pauly that none of us were thinking about the future. We were very much in the moment. It was an incredibly intense experience. I, I kind of equate it like being at the Olympics every day. It was, <laughs> it you know, I was coming out of COVID feeling kind of like, oh, maybe I'm done. I'm just going to teach a bit. I'll just do it. And then this landed in my lap and it was like, whoa, I have to, I got to show up every day and Boy, the bar was high. And it was, you know, the subject, everything about it was, you know, intense. Yeah. Well, you say this landed in your lap. I'm assuming that you and Sarah Polly had crossed paths at some point. She's done lots of oh, theater. Oh, yes. Well, you guys Sarah, Canadian icons. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've no, I, I played her mom in a movie when she was 11, and she was formidable then. You know, she was a very serious little girl, and I remember really loving working with her. And then she did this series called Avonlea based on the Lucy Maud Montgomery books. And and uh, Eugene Levy and I did the very last two episodes of that show. And again, she was just this incredible presence. And then our paths have sort of wind and wind th- through the years at all kinds of things. But honestly, I had to Zoom with her, and she was very apologetic for women talking because I had to, you know, go through the hoops for MGM and sure. all the big wigs. And uh, as the Zoom went on and on and on, it was about an hour and a half, I realized how important this film was. And I got I got off the Zoom, and I, I burst into tears and thought, Wow, this is a. I haven't felt like this in a very long time. And, wow. Um, and then I waited for weeks and weeks and weeks to hear. So that was torture, you know. Was now was that just on the power? Was that the power Sarah talking to you about it? That kind of was mm-hmm. that overwhelming emotional reaction. What was? Yeah. It, what did she? I mean, you know, to sum up concisely, I guess, like what was it about her pitch that was so powerful? You know, we went through every single word in the script, line by line, and. She just, she's just an incredible communicator when it comes to directing. And this, this project is something that she knows, you know, she wrote the screenplay um, honoring Miriam Taves' book. And I could tell how important it was to her. And it was fun. And it was, you know, a really positive experience. And I, I just realized how important it was and how important it was going to be for me to be able to, to play Greta. She thought I was too young, you know, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> and I I kept saying, you know what, honestly, Sarah, take the hair back, slick it back, take the mascara off, <laughs> on those lovely polyester dresses, and um, I promise you I will not be too young. <laughs> she, said, it, she said, it's your spirit. And I said, I know. Okay, I'll dampen that down. I will just, <laughs> I will be less enthusiastic for but, you. But spirit is so important to the movie, too. Like, you know, there's laughs in this movie, and I think that always surprises people to know that there's so much humor in this, and you carry a lot of that, too. Like, you have to bring that with you, and, and I assume that's something that everyone's doing, kind of keeping the spirit of these women alive in these heavy-duty conversations. 
Oh gosh, I love that. I mean, I loved, I loved Ruth and Cheryl, and I loved, I loved being able to be that person. And and yet, it was very tamped down, and it was very, it needed to be, you know, somewhat bottled, so that when it did bubble up, it was that much more fun. You know. Yeah. So is there anxiety that comes with realizing the importance of a project like this? Like you get off the phone with Sarah, you know how vital it is and how timely it is and everything. And then how do you kind of make yourself up for that weight that you have to carry on your shoulders? You know, we had a two-week rehearsal period, which is so rare in filmmaking uh, before that, where we talked a lot about that. There was also a crisis counselor on set the, the entire time that we could access. And I remember she would just walk by me and look at me and like, do you need me? And I'd say, you know what? I just really think I just need another Starbucks right now. I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I think the communication between all of us helped a great deal. And, you know, it's also, I'm answering this in a roundabout way, but we 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 were all together all the time, which in filmmaking is very rare. And that made it a theatrical experience. You know, we were in the wings together. We were on set together. We were on stage together. We were all in one big room behind the scenes. So that camaraderie took care a lot of a lot of the tension. And, you know, we were working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. You, you know, yes, it was intense and everybody had their moments, but there was so much support from the crew, from Sarah. There was so much care. There was, we were all very cognizant of the two little girls in the movie. Um, it was their first film project and to, you know, land in something like this. So, I, I sort of equated it like working with an understudy on stage in Stratford. You need to take care of that person, and that takes care of you. Yeah, and when you guys were in Telluride, you talked to my colleague, David Canfield, and you were looking back on, and then Sarah was really frank about this, about how feedback from the actors after scenes, she would change her directing. Like, she really kind of adjusted it as the project went on. How did that work from your perspective? What What did you kind of watch her change and how you guys all kind of figured it out together how to make this movie? Well, she was very adamant that the words be spoken, the words that she wrote. And yet there was a lot of conversation. I think there was a worry that it was women talking and that it would be two hours of women talking. And, and would that hold a certain tension and a certain beauty and a certain importance? And would it be, would it be dull? <laughs> would mm -hmm, it be, mm -hmm. would it be monotonous? And we understood so early on from Sarah that, the epic quality of this film, the landscape, the 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 scenes of our harrowing experiences at the hands of the men, which would be touched on very delicately, would be interspersed in this, and the, and the little bit of comedy, and the little bit. So I think we just trusted her implicitly that it was going to work. You know, I had one incredible experience with her. We shot my scene where my teeth are coming out and there's blood and I'm at, sitting at the edge of my bed, um, which was my, my, uh, you know, my rape scene. And um, the next day I, I went up to her and I said, oh, I should have made my bed. Greta would have made her bed when she got up in the morning. And Sarah just went, oh, why didn't we do that? And she came up to me literally two and a half months later on the very last day of shooting. And she came into my trailer and, and everybody had gone home. It was just, just us. And she said, do you want to make your bed? And she had the production manager put together my entire bedroom. And we went on set and we remade my bed. And she said to the crew, 
we are redoing the scene because this is Sheila's idea. And, you know, there's very few directors who have the heart to give an actor credit for something, which was really very moving to me. And we redid the scene and I made my bed and it's in the movie. So I, I just, I'll never forget that. Well, she also told a story at Telluride about um, you saying sorry, you know, kind of a pivotal scene, which maybe, you know, I don't want to spoil too much for anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet, but that's also something that isn't in the book. That's kind of straying from the text in some way. Mm-hmm. But, and I think what was so interesting, she said, don't say it if you don't feel it, but then you felt it. Like, what, w- what was that like from your perspective of running with a moment? You know, I got to say, I, when I watched the movie and I thought, well, first of all, the 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 humor in it for me is because Canadians are always saying sorry. So I thought, <laughs> wow, I actually said sorry three times. <laughs> I and this sounds so pretentious, and I'm not that kind of actor, but I don't remember that. I don't mm. remember shooting it. I don't remember that moment. And I'm when I watch it, I go, hmm, oh, I was not bad, but I was pretty Canadian. I don't remember shooting. I don't remember. <laughs> Does that happen often for you? That you no, oh, never, interesting. Never. Wow. I'm always very aware of no, no. So I guess I was, you know, I don't know, hadn't had enough Starbucks or too much Starbucks or <laughs> I I was you know, honestly, working with those actors with Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy and Rooney Marr and Judith Ivy, like and Ben and, and Michelle. Like, I was so fangirl for a lot of it. Like I was so honored to be with them. So that's probably where my mind was at. Like, I got to be good. <laughs> you know, I've got to, wow. <laughs> these are, these, you know, watching them act was a master class for me. So I was, you know, I was that person. <laughs> yeah. I love what Frances McDormand has said, has said about kind of the different generations that go into working on this. You know, there's Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy and then the the teenage girls you were talking about. Like, what did that mean for you? You've, you know, you've taught acting, so you've worked with, like, younger generations before. Like, how did that play into your work on the movie specifically? Well, first of all, I forget how old I am. <laughs> I forget <laughs> how old I am. So that's probably a bad thing. Uh, but, you know, it didn't matter. We were all so on the same page. I mean, I, as I said, we were all very caring of the young girls. I was in awe of them. Like, they were just so, there's something about watching young actors, and I see this in my classes all the time. They just jump in. They have no fear. They don't know yet to be nervous. There's a kind of innocent idiocy to being young and not knowing. And I I watch that and think, wow. I remember feeling that way. So I, I guess with the young ones. And then, you know, you know, Judy and I, you know, we were just constantly saying to each other, wow, this is really special to be doing this after so many years of being in the business, to, to have this. We felt extremely lucky and grateful. And I think sometimes when you're younger and, you know, you're ambitious, you forget how lucky you are. Mm-hmm. And I never forgot that. I still feel that way. Uh, you were saying how you don't think about your age, which I think is the exact correct way to approach anything. But I wonder if when working with younger actresses and you watch the way that they approach being in the industry or what they're learning, do you see a difference? Do you see people kind of starting off the industry in a different way than you were able to just for the way that the industry has changed or what actresses are encouraged to do now? Do you see a distinction? Yeah, I think, you know, for the young ones now, I, you know, I always tell my students, if you can think of anything else to do, feel free to do it. Because 
It's so hard. And, you know, you don't want to tell the young ones how hard it is. But, you know, you spend as much time out of work as you do in work or you're looking for work, always. And it is not for the faint of heart. So I don't like to burst anybody's bubble. But if I'm asked, I will certainly share that. So I think it's harder now because there's a certain feeling of this of being a star right away mm. of being a social media star right away uh, there's that pressure on um actors to or actresses to to be politicizing and being to 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 do to, all to modify yourself right like you have to be a product as a person really to modify and and you know i also think i sometimes i think it's harder in the states like in canada i get to jump around the mediums a lot like i direct theater i do theater i do voiceovers i do film i le- i i don't have to have that sort of vaudeville hook where i do one thing well and i get to do that one thing well I, I sometimes think for, for um, you know, actresses down in L.A., they get to do one thing, and it's very narrow. And I, I've never wanted to be that actor, you know? Yeah. Well, I think of Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley and Rooney Mara all have, like, maintained an air of mystery about themselves, that they've mm-hmm. become stars while also not having to be Instagram stars and not having to, to limit themselves. So maybe they that, maybe that's a— part of how you all wind up working so well in a movie together that they're, they're maybe yeah I never thought about that maybe yeah yeah and you know the Brits they're very sort of practical about you know it's a job and move <laughs> on like you know people have said to me did you ask Claire Foy about the crown I went no no I wouldn't I wouldn't like I just I had I, I couldn't do that couldn't go there <laughs> are you a fan of The Crown or are these people who you know oh, who are God, fans of yes. The Crown okay oh, my God. on the very first scene there's you know, Claire washing my feet on the very first day. I'm going, oh, my God, the queen is washing my feet. <laughs> she would hate to hear me say that, by the yeah. way. She would just go, oh, for heaven's sakes, it's just a job. Get on with it. <laughs> she shows up in, you know, the new season of The Crown is in the future, but there's a flashback with her in it. I was just so happy to see her I version of the, of the queen come back one more time. Know. You know, it, all these actresses, they they all feel grateful, too. Like, there's, you know, there's never an assumption. You're, there's no there there, you know. I mean, it's, it's everybody's just keeps going. And, and um, I had the wonderful good fortune to work with Sally Field once. And she said, you know, Sheila, you've got to reinvent yourself every five years. You're going to look different. You've got to, you know, every five years, you've got to, you know, reinvent the wheel. And I thought, okay, okay. And, you know, I've been doing this, you know, for a long time. And... I love it, and I can't think of anything else to do. So, <laughs> except maybe be a cleaning lady or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I, but I, I, you know, it's it's the highs and lows. And right now with this movie, I totally am celebrating this moment that I never anticipated would happen. You know, and it's 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 a lot of fun now to for us to get all. Gussied up and do a red card. <laughs> really do, you, do you feel like you have to sit in this moment and be like, well, it might be two more years before you work at anything that's any good? So like, oh, do, do you brace yourself for the lows while you're on always. the highs? Every job is the last job. Any Everybody says that always, you know. And, you know, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, are you having conversation? Like, are, are you getting offers or anything? Are you sensing anything changing in terms of what's coming your way with this movie now, now? You know, not a whole lot of people have seen the That's movie true. yet. It's so slow. So I think it's just I keep getting I keep getting this from friends and family. Well, 
just wait. And I go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've had big movies open. I remember I did a movie with Liza called Liza Minnelli called Stepping Out. And I had another Disney movie. And I turned down all this work when these two big premieres happen, happened and nothing, crickets. <laughs> and I thought, boy, what a business. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I, who knows? I try not to take anything for granted or, or get too excited. Well, you said when Women Talking came, you're like, I don't know, maybe I'm done, maybe I'll just teach. Does that still feel like a realistic possibility for you, or do you think you'll just keep getting tracked back on screen well, forever? You know what? I after I love directing. I really love it. Like it's a new hat for me. And I've got a couple projects coming up to direct that I really look forward to. So I'm one of those actors who really likes to work a lot and be busy twenty-four hours a day. So um Yes. I mean, I love to act. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. How new is directing? I didn't realize that that was something fairly new yeah, for you. Yeah, no, I've directed a couple of plays. And honestly, it's, I just, I love, I love the lack of nerve. Like, I, I don't feel any sense of pressure on myself. It's not about me. It's about them. So I can, I feel quite open and confident, you know, doing that. Now, is that something you talked to Sarah Pelley about and either when the movie's done? Because, you know, the, the leap from acting to directing, she's fallen right there. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we were shooting, she was going, yeah, I really think I might want to act again. And I'm going, well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd warn even her away. You'd say, don't do it. Don't. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. You know, it depends on each project. Each project is so different. I've had some of my best times in the last few years on really tiny, budgeted, independent films with, you know, working with the crew. I, right before um, we went to Telluride, my daughter directed me in a film called Civil. And it's a, you know, it's an indie apocalyptic film with, you know, 20-year-olds. And I got to tote a gun and and it was fantastic experience in the woods way up in northern Ontario. And that was great. It was fun. How was, so, yeah, getting directed yeah. by your daughter. That's a yes. role reversal and hard to prepare for. And it was sort of like, I would hear, Mom, I mean, Sheila. And it was, <laughs> I was very proud of her. It was, it was, it was a great experience. And I got to see her every day. So, you know, I haven't seen her since. So that's good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you were talking about how you raise your kids on film sets. So that's, you yeah. brought her exactly where she is. They said to me recently, they, they said, um, Mom, you never took us camping. And then I said, what are you talking about? You were in a trailer your whole lives with craft service right around the corner. But, you know, they're both six feet tall and they both are sort of in the arts, but neither of them become actors. I think I, I think their dad was a, was a, a stage actor and, and I think we killed, we killed, they saw how hard it was. Yeah. It seems like if that's what you're teaching your students and you've gotten that message across to your daughters as well. Exactly. Exactly. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at HWD or on our own. I am at Katie Rich and David's at David Canfield 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. 
Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.